You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, Sam and I talk about how you can determine the control strategy for a manufacturing process and Even if you're not working in manufacturing, you can learn a lot from there. So stay tuned. And now some music. I first didn't know what is a control strategy. And after this discussion with Sam, I really understood what he meant by that. And it's a great way to think about how you can actually optimize and control a very, very long process that has many, many different factors. And you can probably apply lots of the same thoughts for any other process that you're looking into, where there's a couple of different steps in between and you can understand kind of what is driving variability in there, what is driving quality in there. So this doesn't only apply to manufacturing processes, it probably applies to lots of different processes. And you will also learn a lot about design of experiments and things like that. So stay tuned for awesome discussion with Sam. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode that I'm doing together with Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? I am doing very well today. It's been a busy day, but I'm ready to do some podcasting. <laughs> yeah, it's been a busy day for me as well, but also a pretty cool day because I listened to um, uh, a webinar by uh, Alberto Cairo that I actually also organized, but uh, that was quite, quite impactful. Yes. And yes. Um, yeah, we had him on this podcast uh, a while ago. And if you haven't listened yet to that episode i'll strongly recommend to going back to him and yeah maybe we'll have him in the future again yeah data visualization is anyway a really really nice topic to uh, talk about but today we are not talking about data visualization although that is always plays some part in you know uh, lots of things that we do we talk about control strategy and how to determine it for a manufacturing process. Of course, in our discussion, we'll go refer to manufacturing in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but to be honest, that can be extrapolated to other manufacturing processes. It can be extrapolated to actually lots of other general processes that you want to optimize, that you need to demonstrate the, the characteristics of and so I think it's it's a very very interesting way of 
of looking in uh, into a you know process flow into um, how a complex uh, system actually works and how you can understand it so that you can optimize it. Right. Maybe we can go back a little bit uh, to you know. What is a control strategy? We talked shortly about that in one of the earlier podcasts uh, that we recorded together, but maybe you can give a short description of it again. Right. Well, the control strategy for a drug manufacturing process is really the overall approach to ensure that when you make the drug product, it's going to be of good quality and acceptable quality. And there are a lot of uh, guidance documents that describe this. If you look at the ICH documents, there's an ICH Q8, which is on pharmaceutical development. There's an ICH Q9, which is on quality risk management. Q10 is on pharmaceutical quality systems. Q11 is on the development of manufacture of drugs, uh, development and manufacture of drug substances, and even ICH Q2, which is on the validation of analytical procedures. All of those kind of fit together, uh, the guidance documents that form the basic framework for how you would put together a control strategy for a, a drug product. Um, and so, but in the end, what you really have to do is you have to submit a, a, a way that you're going to make and test and ensure that that drug product is going to be of high quality when you make it. Yep. And if you wonder what ICH stands for, that is the International, I think, Conference on Harmonization. Right. Um, and it consists of the FDA, the EMA, and the Japanese uh, regulator that worked on, you know, very, very, you know, principles and, and basics for getting a harmonized approval process in all these different areas. And that has evolved over time. There's, of course, you know, something about statistics as well, the E9 one. Uh, but yeah, as you just heard, there's also lots of other things in it. And very often that is kind of also re referred to, yeah, good manufacturing practice, isn't it? Right. So you have this idea of good manufacturing practices. GMP is the abbreviation we use, GMP. And that just has to do with generally accepted approaches for how you should do manufacturing in, in a good way. Right? They call them good manufacturing practices. And uh, some of those are codified. I mean, are there in guidance documents to say this is how you should do it? And some of it is just sort of this is how the pharmaceutical industry does it. And people just learn as they, they participate in working in those areas, they learn what constitutes GMP. You know, there are other sort of G, GXP, there's GCP for good clinical practices. There's GLP for good lab practices. And in the end, they're all focused on, again, how do you ensure that you're doing things with high quality? Yep. Yep. Okay. So uh, the fundamental sciences that, that are surrounding all the manufacturing processes is chemistry, biochemistry, engineering type yeah. of science. If I understand it, when you manufacture lots of different products, you need to have good strategy for each of these products. Or do you have one for all of them together? Well, each individual drug product that you submit to, to be approved has its own control strategy. It is its own unique control strategy that is 
registered with the appropriate regulatory agency. Um, now, there are a lot of similarities between control strategies of products of the same type. Okay, so, so if you have antidepressant and SSRI, yeah, and there's different types of SSRI, then they're probably, you know, they have more or less a similar chemical structure, a um, little bit differences here and there. They're probably generally manufactured in more or less the same way. Uh, they would have all similar strategies, probably. Yeah, they could be, but it, oftentimes it's more organized around the type of manufacturing process that's used and the the actual dosage form that's used. Okay. So an antidepressant that's a tablet would have a potentially very different control strategy than an antidepressant that's an injectable, for instance. Okay, so, okay. And a pill, would that be very, very different to these capsules? Capsules and tablets are more similar, I would say, but they have their unique aspects to them as well. Okay. Um, you know, the difference between a, a capsule and a tablet is with a capsule, you're making, you're making material that you're filling into a capsule. So you have the aspect of making that material that goes inside the capsule and then how you fill it. And then how the capsule itself material is made mm. with a drug, drug tablet. What you have is a blend of material that's compressed into a little hard piece of material that becomes a tablet. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, different approach, but generally the end testing is the similar between the two, the types of tests you would do for the quality of the material, but the control of the manufacturing process and how you do that and what's important to control in the manufacturing process would be different between those two types of yeah. drug products. And then you have, of course, all type of different formulations that you can think of, you know, from shower to patches to things that you inhale and, you know, intravenous, intramuscular, all kind of different applications. <laughs> yes, it's, that's one of the really neat things about working in this non-clinical area, particularly in the CMNC development areas, you get to experience so much variety in, in those areas. You, you get to see lots of different types of technology and can have an impact on how those uh, products are developed and manufactured. Yep. So if I think about, you know, this manufacturing process, it's, it's, you know, one big process. Why can't I just describe the characteristic of, of it in one step? Well, as you said, the, the, it is a big process and it, it's typically a multi-step process to make a drug product. The best way to start when you think about developing a control strategy for these is to think about the end in mind. What's, what's the ultimate goal? And the actually in the ICHQ8, they define something called a quality target product profile, QTPP. And here's the definition of it. A QTPP is a prospective summary of the quality characteristics of a drug product that ideally will be achieved to ensure the desired quality, taking into account safety and efficacy of the drug product. And so if you really want to start out right with developing a new drug product, you start with something like this, a QTPP, which in many ways is, is very high level. It, it, it's not very specific. It's not specifying things about the components of the drug or the specific testing criteria. It's really more like, okay, we want this to be a solid oral dosage form. It's going to be a tablet. Okay. 
that that's part of the quality of you want it to be a tablet. It needs to be immediate release or it needs to be extended release, depending upon what type of pharmacological control mm -hmm. you want inside the patient. You think about, well, you know, is it, is it an oral administration? Is it injectable? You have to define all of these things. You talk about what's the dose and that's where, you know, some of those early clinical studies are really important. You have to get the right dose because that drives everything. If you don't know the dose, you can't design the drug product. Yeah. And, uh, and so you have, you have the target dose and maybe even ideally a dose range that, you know, like, you know, it's, if it needs to be 20 milligrams, it'd be nice to know that it can be 18 to 22 milligrams and still be okay. But the target, you need to know the target dose. You also, you'd say that, you know, the drug needs to be stable. And sometimes you'd set like a stability goal. You want it to be stable at room temperature for 24 months. So shelf life kind so, of things. Yeah, because yeah. If, if you don't have enough shelf life, you can't really sell the product or you can't manage the supply chain of the product. Yeah. And then you talk about sort of all of the drug product quality attributes. And you would say, well, it needs to, you know, that there's these common terms that get used in this area. So you'd have identification. So you know that it's the actual molecule you're getting, you know, is it the right molecule? It, the assay, does it have the right amount of drug in it? Content uniformity. Now, this is a statistical issue that happens a lot in this area. Is the variation in the content of the drug from dosage unit to dosage unit. You need to verify that that's acceptably low because you don't want to have a wide variation in the amount of dose from tablet to tablet. Otherwise, you may not get the intended dose. Or you um, might get side effects because right, you, know, you, right. Have, could, you know, for certain drugs, if you... If you're not stable on the dose, you get, you know, overdose, underdose, and both have yeah. weird side if, effects. Yeah, yeah, if it's too high, you get safety issues. If it's too low, you get efficacy issues. And and then other things like being able to test that the drug will actually dissolve and be absorbed into the body system. So there are analytical methods that are developed. A, a dissolution test is usually developed for solid oral dosage forms to test that ability of the drug to dissolve and then be absorbed. Things about, you specify that you want the, a low level of degradation products and impurities. And, you know, every drug probably has some level of impurities in it. And those are all typically qualified to, to be at what, what are the safe levels of those impurities. And when you say impurity, it sounds scary, like, ooh, this is really bad. But it could just be that it's the original molecule with the piece of it that fell off, right? Or it's the original molecule with a little bit added on or one of the bonds changes. And it may just be that it's not active anymore and not very harmful. But some impurities can potentially be very harmful. So there's a lot of work that goes on early on in uh, early toxicology, pharmacology studies to look at, okay, what is, what is really the, the fate of the drug in the body systems and what are the types of impurities we could see and how potentially harmful would they be? Something similar in the clinical world, it's called target product profile. Yeah, mm -hmm. or has a similar name, yeah, where you want to say, okay, the drug should be, you know, as efficacious as this other drug and needs to be, you know, that much more safe or it needs to have, you know, uh, that uh, speed of onset or, you know, whatever characteristics it needs to have to be able to uh, be, you know, successful and really an added benefit for the patient. Right. And, and then there are other things, you know, like uh, you think about this residual solvent. So every time you do a chemical process, you use solvents and 
you ideally like to remove them as much as much as possible because by definition, solvents have no therapeutic effect, right? That's kind of the, the, the general regulatory opinion. So you want to remove them, but there's always a chance you're going to have a little bit of the solvent left over. Sometimes the, the actual solvent molecule can get trapped inside the, the crystal structure of the drug and you can't get it out. Yeah. And, but you want to do it, make sure that it's at a low enough level again, that it's not harmful. Um, and then other thing, other things like microbial control, like you don't want the, um, you don't want your tablets to start molding and growing <laughs> yeast on them and stuff while they're sitting in the bottle. So that all of those things go together. And, and so you put all that together in a picture. This is the quality of the, of the drug product that I would like to produce okay, as the starting point. Yeah. So you basically have lots of different variables with target ranges that you want to get to. Yeah. yeah. So what you do is you take those general higher level goals for the, the quality, and then you drop them down a level to be a little bit more specific. So the first thing would be for the drug product to define something called critical quality attributes. And these would be properties of the drug that you can measure physically or chemically or visually that are related to those quality elements in the quality target product profile. So an example would be the, the dosage that the quality target product profile says it's got to have a, a dose at this level. So what you do is you develop an analytical test along with a sampling procedure and a sample preparation method. So you can sample the dosage forms and you can test them to see if those dosage forms has that target amount of drug in it. Okay, so the critical quality attribute then would be the, the assay, the amount of, of active material in the dosage unit, or, or the, sometimes it's the average of the overall lot that's produced, and sometimes it's the amount that's in the individual dosage unit itself that's measured. Okay. And I have a question, you know, would the cost of the end product, yeah, would that go into this profile because you know you probably want to have the you know the cost of the of the pill or the injection as low as possible in the end right right so certainly internal to the business that's developing the drug product that's a, a very important aspect um, you want the drug to be affordable for two reasons one's because companies exist ideally to at least make some money, right? To not lose money. And secondly, you, you would like to develop medicines that are affordable for patients to use as well, right? Yeah. And the, um, but in terms of what you show to a regulatory agency, you never okay. talk about they cost. Don't they don't care. They don't, they generally don't but, care. But within the company, you have these kind of ranges for, for things like that as well. Right. So you might have, in addition to this quality target product profile, you might have additional design criteria that defines what is a successful design and manufacturing process for a drug product. Okay. So could that also include like, we don't need to build another plant to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. Capital avoidance is a really, really good thing. Yeah. So that, and sometimes that isn't necessarily part of the, the quality directly part of the quality target product profile or the company goals, but it's always there in the background. Yeah. An example would be biopharmaceuticals. So uh, any of these um, monoclonal antibody products, you know, that are approved and being yeah. and they're currently all those they're, that end on MAP something something yeah. in with a MAB or right? MAB they end with a MAB. Those are very 
expensive material products to make. They, they require a very heavy capital investment. You have to have a lot of stainless steel tanks in your manufacturing process to produce those. They take a long time. Like you can, you know, from beginning to end, it can take several months to make one lot. Um, they use a huge amount of raw materials like uh, buffers, buffer solutions, buffered solutions that are used during the purification step. Um, and, and those can be very expensive to produce. And so if you can come up with a way to do that, say in, in a more continuous fashion, where you have less tanks required and mm -hmm. you can make it more modular. So you can actually, so you can switch from one product to another, even in the same type of equipment or unit. That's very, very good for the, for the company overall. And it makes it more affordable to make the products. And it also allows you to make more product with the same amount of, um, of equipment space or, or floor space in a, in a plant. And just for those who don't know about the background, you know, these, these, if you think of the, the production of, let's say, aspirin being a, a bicycle, the production of an antibody is more kind of as a, as a Ferrari or maybe yeah, something even more. At least complex. a motorcycle, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's fun. You know, I've enjoyed a, a lot working in these areas where I get to understand the science and how it works. That's really a lot of fun. And even as I'm talking here, I'm thinking, wow, I guess I kind of know actually how these processes work because I've worked on them enough and, and, um, and understand generally how they, how they flow And that really is a key to success to being able to work in that area too, is learning the science. It, it, it's hard to do this if you don't learn the science. Okay. So uh, if we have a huge problem, then usually we do break it down into smaller bits and pieces that mm -hmm. are more easier to manage. And so um, we do that the same with the, uh, with this big process. We kind of, um, make it into more kind of smaller process steps that, you know, follow each other. What is a typical process step? How do I determine, okay, that's now a, a step or that is, is it, you know, or can I divide it more, uh, more smaller into even smaller steps? You do it in two ways. One, you do it in phases. And usually there's two or three phases of this drug product development. There's an early phase where you're really just trying to see, can I make this drug at all? Okay. Can I just, you know, can I just make it? The second phase is what are the things that make, allow me to make this drug um, in a way that's good enough for clinical trial material. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the third phase is how do I generate the knowledge that I need so that I know that I can control the quality of this drug product when I make it on a routine basis. Okay. okay? Some people call those like formulation development, right? There's the first phase. The, the, the second phase is, um, is some like target development, or sometimes it's called process definition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the third phase is called, you know, final phase or process characterization, depending on kind of where you work and what area, what type of products you work in. So. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And then, so these are the three different phases and then mm -hmm. for within each of these phases you ha would have different steps that you right so for instance the, the early phase where you're really just trying to decide what's the right formulation what's the right mixture of components that need to go into the drug product there's a lot of experimentation that's usually done there to try to identify a formulation that is stable 
right? That's not going to degrade over time. It's palatable. It doesn't taste really bad. Or if it does taste bad, it's not so bad that people won't take it. Um, it's interesting in the animal health area where I've worked, palatability is a really big issue because oh. we are for children too. But, but you imagine, you know, you can make yourself take a bitter pill, but it's really hard to make your dog take a bitter pill. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, little child, yeah, or <laughs> little child, right? So you, so you, ha- so it has to be stable, palatable. It it has to be, you know, able to be administered, right? So it has to be able to be swallowed or injected or whatever, the, depending on the drug form it is. And it also kind of you have to think a little bit even now about well, what does marketing really want? You I mean does it? They may say, you know, I want this tablet to be blue because blue means something. And do you put some dye in it or, or it may be that the drug substance has a color to it. And sometimes there's little chemical elements on a, on a molecule that makes it have a color. Mm -hmm. And so you say, well, this drug is going to look a little red. Is that okay? And if it doesn't, maybe they want to put some sort of dye in the material to change the color of the tablet or something, you know? So, so there are all those things go in there and you want to look at those early on because you don't want to have to go back and repeat this step. Mm-hmm. If you repeat the form, if you have to go back and repeat the formulation step, everything after it almost has to be redone again yeah. because the formulation drives then the subsequent things you do to develop the manufacturing process to make the material. So, okay. so that's the first phase, you know, and then the second phase is really kind of more just, okay, we, we want to make a tablet. We've got a formulation. Let's just go make some and make it, and test it and ensure that it's good quality and show that we can do that so that we can make enough material to be used in a clinical trial. Which is on a completely different scale than if you want to later market it. Right, right. But you still need to know, and that's where a little bit of the interaction with what happens on the clinical side and the manufacturing side and manufacturing development side is they have to tell you, okay, what, how big is the study going to be? How many dosage units do we need? When do we need it by those types of things? Um, and so for that to happen, what you really have to have are a, a good target manufacturing process. It doesn't have to be the final process that you use, um, but it needs to be good enough that it can be accepted as that this, this material will be a good quality. And then the material that you're going to make later will be representative or be similar to that in some way. The, the other thing you need are good analytical testing methods. So by that time, you've identified the critical quality attributes of the drug product, and you've developed analytical testing methods that test for the test those quality attributes so that you can um, do that. And you sometimes, it depends on the company, sometimes people want to do what's called method validation on those methods at that point. So that means you've gone through a a structured approach to demonstrate that the measurement method works right, works the way you intend it to. And and that is a good quality measurement method. Other times they just go through some sort of level of qualification that say this method is good enough to be used at this point. And then further on down the road, they will do a final validation on that that, uh, method that's going to be used for production. So, so for example, if you need to develop a new assay, then you first need to also check whether the assay actually does what it should does. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you want to you want to know that when you're measuring the amount of dose that's in those tablets that you can use in clinical trials, that you're doing that the right way, yeah. and that you're measuring the impurities in the right way, um, and so that that's the the next phase. And then then usually there's a there's a key milestone there where 
you actually make the clinical trial material and you, and you release it for clinical trials. And then the clinical trial starts running and the, in parallel, the last stage of development moves forward, the process characterization stage. And this is where you can have lots and lots and lots of experiments going on. Because what you do is you take the manufacturing processes that are used and you break it down into multiple steps. Um, an example might be for a drug tablet, there you have typically a blending step. So you put all the materials together and you blend them. Mm -hmm. Then you have a, um, a granulation step where you, you kind of blend that dry blend with liquid to form more of a, um, a powdery, sticky powdery material that can be compressed into a tablet. So you have a granulation step. Can, can I think of that as kind of, I first have, you know, a certain machine that does something with all the ingredients. And then there's, you know, there's input and then there's output from this machine. Right. And before it goes into the next machine, I determine how that looks like. And so right. that's so you one need, step, basically. Right. So, so, so the, the output of the blending step is the input into the granulation step. Yeah. And so and each then, time I have some kind of output, I, I have a step. Right. And then you go, you, then you go from granulation to maybe some additional blending. Oftentimes what you do is you put some exterior, exterior coating material on a tablet, and then you go into compression where you actually form that blended material into a tablet. Mm -hmm. And then after that, there's some bulk, you know, you do some testing on that. And then further on, you actually do packaging where you put the tablets into the, the packaging that it's going to be uh, sold as. So and so blisters or yeah. things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. each one of those steps is going to have parameters that potentially impact the quality of the material at the end of that step and the, and the ultimate quality of the final product. So in the blending step, the first step, one thing that could be really impact the quality is if that blending is not uniform, right? Because if the blending is not uniform, then ultimately when you compress that material in the tablets, there's going to be a lot of variability in the, in the amount of dose from tablet to tablet. Mm -hmm. And so that, so things that you might say could be potentially important for the final drug product quality would be the amount of time that you use for blending, the amount of energy that you put into the blending and, and things like that. And then you do experiments to say, okay, well, if I blend it for five minutes, is it good enough quality? If I blend it for seven minutes, is it good enough quality? So on until you, if you and hopefully you can at least identify a range of blending times mm -hmm. that where you know it's going to work and maybe even where it's not going to work. And, and if you use design of experiments, you can do that pretty efficiently. Okay. Yeah, and that's now the where the design of experiments that we actually right. talked to a little bit earlier in one of the other podcast episodes comes into place where because you have lots of different for each step, you have lots of different factors that you can influence. Mm -hmm. And if of course it's a hyperdimensional space. Yeah, so, yep. so yeah. it has lots of lots of different combinations are possible. You need to have a very, very clever way to understand where you actually do an experiment. And is that sense that you basically characterize it and then in the interesting areas, you do another experiment where you kind of look in a more kind of granular way into the design space? 
Yeah. So oftentimes the good way to approach this experimental strategy is again, to break up the process by steps and at each step, identify what potential factors could impact the quality of the, the drug product and then do a risk assessment. And the risk assessment is really just most, mostly based on prior knowledge and, and engineering and scientific expertise. But you say, what do you think is most likely of these, maybe it's 10 factors, right? of what, which one has a high impact to quality, which one would have a medium impact to quality, which one would have a low impact to quality. And then based on that, you'll do different types of experimentation on those factors. The factors that could potentially have a high impact to quality, you probably want to do a fairly thorough experimental design on that to look and see where do I need to operate? Where do I need to control these factors? You mm -hmm. know, what ranges do I need to control them and to ensure that I have good quality? Uh, things that have low like low impact, you may choose not to experiment them on them at all. I'll, I'll just accept that as a risk. Like an, an example, what would be an example would be, well, when you're doing the blend, one risk would be that you add the wrong amount of material into the blend. That could happen. You could, yep. you could just misadd. You could spill some of the active material when you're pouring it into the, the mixing vessel. That's definitely could have a high impact, right? It could, if it happens, that could really impact the, the, the quality of the drug product because it may not have an accurate dose. But at the same time, it's probably very low probability that that's going to happen. Because yeah. if it does happen, someone's going to see it, they're going to address it. They do a lot of work in manufacturing on material accountability, always making sure you add the right amount of material and double checking it, having another person check that you did it. So usually things like that, we say, yeah, that's a risk. It could have an impact, but it's so low probability that ultimately it's, that's not something we're, we're going to actually yep. do an experiment on where we're going to add less material and more material and see what happens. Right. Yep. But ultimately you do this risk ranking, you identify a reasonable amount of factors that you want to do an experiment on. And then ideally you do some designed experiments around that. And it could be a sequential approach. You may start out with a screening study. If you have a lot of factors, say six or seven or eight or 10 factors that are all potentially high risk. And you say, well, well, let's let those factors range from low to high, and let's just do a, a screening experimental design on that. And you could do a screening experimental design on 10 factors with 12 experimental runs, right? A Plackett-Berman design is the classic design that's used to do that. Mm -hmm. And then what the, the ultimate goal of that is not to make a prediction, it's to screen out which ones have a big impact when you go from low to high on that factor range and the ones that don't have a big impact. Mm -hmm. okay. And you say, maybe if you go from 12 factors after that screening design and it becomes five factors or three factors at the end of the screening design. Okay. All right. And then you go into the next step. You say, okay, of those remaining factors that, that showed like they have a big impact, let's do a more a detailed design, maybe a response surface design on those three factors. And that way, what allows me to make a prediction about where the, the quality attributes going to be of the drug product as I vary the, the factor inputs and maybe even develop something that's called a design space. The, the design space is really, if you think about it, it's, it's really the area where you know I can operate in this region and it's going to produce good quality material, right? And design space also has a regulatory meaning. If you register a design space for a drug manufacturing step or drug manufacturing process and the regulatory agency approves that, what that means is, is you can make changes within that design space without getting additional 
approval from the regulatory agency. Oh, okay. Because you have control with it. Right. Because you've demonstrated, you know, that with a reasonable um, level of risk, you know, with, you know, that you're going to make good quality material in that region. Design spaces are not done for every part of the manufacturing process, but it could be important for certain parts of the manufacturing process where you know, you're going to need to adjust because of maybe the inputs will vary to the process. So, you know, you need to adjust to the input variation, different things like that, where you may want to register a, 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 an actual regulatory design space. That's the dream. You know, that's, that, that is the dream that everyone has that you can just do it. You register this design space and you can move your process around anywhere inside that range. <laughs> it's not quite that easy. Yeah. Um, there's still a lot of internal controls to when you do that, to make sure you're not doing something unintentionally wrong. And, um, but in general, if you don't have that design space and you have a way you said you're going to make the drug product, and then you say, oh, I want to change my target conditions for making the drug product. You typically have to go back to the reg regulatory agency and get prior approval to do that. One of the things is you basically also assume that, you know, these different steps, you can control them independently of each other. Yeah. So that the, um, If they are really kind of independent steps, yeah, what, whatever kind of the outcome of one is, you can optimize each one of them individually. And well, you, when you do that, you optimize always the overall chain, isn't right. it? Right. You sometimes, yes, that's true. And, and that goes into that risk assessment thinking. You think yeah. about what might be the connections between the inputs and outputs from a given yeah. process steps from step one to step two to step three. If you think there's likely to be some potential interaction between the factors you control in the first step and the factors that you control in the second step, what you can do is you can do a bigger study. You can do a combined study yeah, yeah. Uh, of two-step, multi-step studies. Uh, you can also do sometimes what are called linkage studies, where what you do is you kind of take the extremes of each of the step conditions. You say, I, I identified this is the range I want to operate in for each step. Take sort of the worst case extreme on each one of those steps and do run the old process at those worst case extremes yep. to see if there's sort of a, a negative synergy effect that they're going to make bad quality material in the end. So sometimes that's, that's important to do as well. Yeah. And I think another assumption is that within the different steps, you measure all relevant variables. Yeah. So that is, of course, yeah, very, very critical. If you miss to measure a significant variable, yeah, from from the product, then um, and you don't know about it, then that can you know produce all kind of different interdependencies. And uh, yes. yeah, yeah, that is that is true. And and it's um, you know one thing I've, I found is really really nice in working in this area is you get to see the whole picture usually. Mm. Um, it's oftentimes people who work in this development area, if they're, if they're just focusing on say making a tablet, they don't necessarily have even a lot of insight into how the packaging's done. Right? Mm -hmm. Someone else handles the packaging. The person who makes the tablet may have not actually been involved with selecting the formulation that mm. was used to make the tablet. Someone did that two years ago and now I'm the new engineer and I've got to figure out how to make this, do this formulation and make it into a tablet. And so working as a statistician these areas, you tend to see the whole picture of everything that's going on. Yeah. yeah. So how is the, how, how now is the data 
coming into this. So, so we talked a lot about the design and, you know, how you break down the overall process flow, which I think is really, really interesting because you can, you know, understand that for, for lots of other processes as well. Yeah. So, so even probably for something like a marketing process, yeah, where you have, you know, a, think of a funnel and, you know, the different people that first listen about something and then they, you know, uh, maybe buy a smaller product and then buy a bigger product and then buy a premium product, you know, how, you know, all your different interventions in terms of your marketing, how you can ap- approve it. But um, so how's the data going on in the, uh, in, in your space then? Yeah, the data can be a little crazy sometimes. It, it can be everywhere. It can be highly disorganized, not standardized in its approach and how it's recorded. An example might be even just the variable names that that are used for what's being measured throughout the development may change. And someone may initially call that the potency if they're measuring the content. And then someone will change the name to assay. And then someone will change the name to method 2157 result. And, <laughs> you know, and it's it's just, you know, and so you get these different datas and the column names are different. Yeah. So it can be a real challenge sometimes putting data together. Uh, not so much on like an individual study. That's always easy to understand. But when you're trying to synthesize and put everything together, it can be a real challenge. And then ultimately, you've got to report a lot of this data when you do a regulatory submission and you want it to all look consistent. Yeah. So you find sometimes you have to go back in history and rename things and then document why did you rename it. Um, but it's... Uh, but anyway, yeah, it can be a little bit of a challenge. I've some companies do it better than others. Um, I I've got a client right now that has really spent a lot of time on defining the data that they want to collect and and standardizing it, standardizing the names of the columns, the units that they're going to report, the number of decimal places that will be, you know, all of those things. They've really done go, do dived very deep into that and and written a guidance document uh, for, for, you know, like a particular product. This is how we're going to collect data for this product as we develop it. That's really nice because when that's all defined, then you know what you're going to get whenever you get a set of data. Um, But I've been in the complete opposite where, I mean, data is scattered everywhere. Sometimes it's stored in a a paper laboratory notebook. Sometimes it's in an, an electronic laboratory notebook. Sometimes it's in an Excel spreadsheet or a table in a PDF report. And you just got to get that data together to do the analysis and got to invest the time to do it. Yeah, see, probably what lots of data scientists face all the time. That, you know, yeah. you have a Excel sheet there and a SAS sheet there and a jump script there and... A- <laughs> Yeah, my, my recommendation, yeah. if anybody, you know, is a non-clinical statistician doing this type of work, invest some time in looking into how can I, how can we standardize the data that we collect? Because once you standardize data, what I would call, it's what I call developing a data model, right? Yeah. This is what the data should look like. That enables you to build tools yeah. to automate a lot of what you do. If everything is unique, every data set's unique, you have to customize what you're doing manually or by changing your code or whatever. And it, it, that takes a lot of time and it, it, it wears you down. It, me physically, it wears me mentally and physically. It kind of wears me down eventually too. And I just see, find myself wishing, oh, I wish we had to standardize this data earlier on 
it would make all of this extra work easier. So do as much as you can, if you can standardize the the data model and the types of data you're collecting, that's going to benefit you in the long run. Yeah, I have said when, you know, it's the first time I got the data, you know, the missings were coded with 999. And next time I got the data, the missings were coded with just a dot. And next time I got the data, the missings were just empty cells. And you would get, go crazy because <laughs> it's, yeah, every time you run the program, it, you get error messages. Or, you know, you might not get error messages, but weird results. And it's uh, that's, that's a, just a nightmare. The other aspect of data is that because... I tend to be at the center of a lot of what's going on with the data. I ended up having to take up a lot of um, data management responsibilities. Like, so where is the data going to be stored? Is this data the right data? Has someone verified that this is the right data? Is it traceable back to its original source? Those types of things sometimes you have to take on because if you don't, and then you later on, you have to go back and do that again. You're going to regret that you did not do that. Right yeah, time. or, you know, if you need to, I don't know, move to a different job and you need to show to your successor how, how where the data is and where the data mm-hmm. is coming from, if you haven't defined that well, yeah, or maybe not even written down, then you get, get to be in deep trouble. I learned right. that when I was at university and I wasn't a good data manager at that time. Right, right. It, it, my mantra is, if it's not written down, it did not happen. Yeah, yeah. So it's you need to write down how you handled the data and document that well enough so that someone else could reproduce it in the future. Yep, yep. Okay, so today we talked a lot about the, the process of how to determine a control strategy for manufacturing processes. And we talked about, you know, how that overall looks like, how you can break it down into different phases and within the different phases into different steps uh, so that you can, you know, have this overall complex process be cut down into more manageable pieces. And then for these more manageable pieces, you can further refine kind of the variables that have an influence uh, to those that, you know, really have a high influence where you can then uh, study them, how much they have an impact and uh, more learn about your, your design space. And we also learned what kind of how the statistician uh, maybe at the center here where he oversees all the different steps where, you know, the individual scientist or engineer might only see a certain certain step. And so that is a, it's a really, really good deep insight in how that works in the preclinical or non-clinical phase. And it's also quite interesting for those who need to manage any bigger you know, projects where, you know, you can break it down into lots of, lots of different steps. And we also talked a little bit about the assumptions that you need to make to, in order to know that these steps are actually independent from each other. Any, any final words from you, Sam, regarding? Well, I would say, you know, bringing back, bringing everything back up to the high level, because when you do this control strategy, you start at the high level, you go down into the details, but ultimately you have to tell a story. Yeah. When you do a regulatory submission to get approval to make this drug product, there's a structure to do that. They have something called the common technical document, and it has defined sections where you talk about different aspects of the the drug product development. 
um, and the analytical method development. But you ultimately you have to synthesize all of these things you've done together into one story that shows that you can make this drug with with good quality. And the I find that I'm kind of at the center of all of that, you know, and I've actually, because of that, actually been able to get very directly involved in actually writing sections of module two, uh, module two of the common technical document as part of the regulatory submission where, you know, it's actually my words that I'm writing that get submitted. And that's kind of cool. I, I just, I, and, and then ultimately when those products get approved, you really go, wow, I had a, a really direct immediate impact on getting that, that drug approved. And, and so that, that's for me, one of the most fulfilling aspects of it. When you actually see the results of all of that work, that detail work come together into a new drug product um, approval, and that that's actually manufactured and made. And I, I've got several examples, you know, products like that where sold billions of dollars of, of drug products and helped hundreds and thousands and millions of people, you know, with their medical issues that that's really, really satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So thanks a lot. A uh, great episode to again, again together. And so um, listen to this podcast again next week, where we will continue to talk about this a little bit more and see other things about Uh, the other statistical things that play a role in here. Right. I mean, we could talk about things like, well, why would you want to work in this area in the begin with? Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that some people I think look at me like, well, I don't understand why you want to be a non-clinical statistician in pharma. And then maybe I can give some insight into what at least I think is good about it. And then. That be okay. Fun. Thanks so much. Have a nice Bye. day. Bye. Bye-bye. show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and much more to become a more effective statistician. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.